be another great year with our His Kids production, so we look forward to that. Sign up if you are interested. Today we are continuing in a sermon series that we're calling Salt, Light, and Barbecue Sauce, which seems like a funny title, but uh, what we've been saying is that sharing the gospel, sharing our faith, doesn't need to feel uh, so awkward, or you don't have to be that guy who feels kind of weird sharing your faith. It doesn't have to feel like a religious debate. Uh, it does not have to feel like a high-pressured sales pitch. Instead, it could feel as natural as a conversation that might come up uh, here around the grill in a context like in your backyard. And so that's kind of the, the, the heart behind our series. And I want to start today with a poll question. What do you think is the, the least uh, popular spiritual gift out of those I'm going to list on the screen? Number one, uh, the gift of hospitality. Number two, service. Three, administration. Four, evangelism. Five, teaching. Six, encouragement. What number do you think is the least popular? You see where I'm going here, don't you? <laughs> People say uh, the gift of evangelism is the least popular. In fact, I read this week that most believers in Christ will admit uh, that they have never led anyone to the Lord. Less than 5% of all Christians have ever led anyone to the Lord. And so they don't often identify with that spiritual gift. Uh, George Barna uh, said, quote, the depressed proportion of believers who identify with this gift reflects the stalled growth of the Christian body in America, unquote. So if we here at NBC are going to expand the table for the glory of God, which is our vision, uh, we're going to have to get out of our comfort zone a little bit and learn some things. Uh, pastoring a church who have people uh, in it with this kind of mindset feels a little bit like coaching that uh, famous sports team, the Bad News Bears. Remember that old classic movie where uh, nobody on the team really felt like they were gifted for baseball, uh, but yet somehow they made it to uh, you know, the championship. If we are going to have any hope in growing uh, and expanding our church, we're going to need to grow a little bit in our ability to share our faith. That's why we're doing this series. Now, for most people, when you ask them uh, this simple question, why don't you share your faith with unbelievers, typically they give a one-word answer uh, that starts with F. It's a four-letter word. What do you think they say? Fear. You're right. We talked about that last week. Becky Pippert says in her excellent book, Out of the Salt Shaker, fear, not ignorance, is the real enemy of evangelism. Fear, not ignorance, is the real enemy of evangelism. When most people think about this idea, they are absolutely terrified. But here's what I want to assert with you this morning. The issue is never, are you afraid or what are you afraid of? The issue is, what are you doing to overcome those fears? The issue is not, are you afraid or what are you afraid of? The issue is, what are you doing to overcome those fears? I found out that Christians kind of have the wrong idea of what evangelism is, and so I would encourage you to change your approach a little bit uh, based on the scriptures. Uh, this week is all about how to do evangelism. The first week we talked about what evangelism is. That's our mission. Week two was why we do evangelism. That was about motivation. And week three is about how do we actually do it. And so this has to do more with strategy. Now, Robert Coleman says in his classic book, The Master Plan of Evangelism, that when it comes to learning how to evangelize, we do not look to the sources of TV evangelists or modern marketing techniques. The place where we must look, he says, is the ultimate example found in our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's where I want to take you back this morning in the Gospel of John chapter 
4. What we're going to see here in this story as Jesus interacts with somebody who's far from God, I believe, are five timeless principles that we can use that are very relevant in our lives today as we seek to share our faith with those around us. But before we dive into the Word, let me just encourage you to think about somebody in your life who doesn't know Christ, a friend, family member, neighbor. Bring that person's mind, name to your mind. Maybe bring their face into your mind as you're thinking about this message. It will mean more to you as you get more specific. With that said, this is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. Let's just dive in. John chapter 4, if you're ready, say amen. It says this in verse 3. He, meaning Jesus, left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. Pause right there. You need to know that at that time, the Jews did not choose often to go through Samaria. They went around Samaria on purpose, and the reason is because there was so much animosity between these two groups of people, the Jews viewed the Samaritans as unclean. Although they were descendants of Abraham also, they had intermarried, and so they became not just ethnically mixed, but also religiously mixed as well. And so they thought they were compromised. So these two groups were at odds, and they didn't like each other. And so what's so interesting about this story here, to me, is that Jesus, a Jewish man, goes right through Samaria on purpose, which leads us to point number one. If you're going to make an impact on unbelievers, we must learn to go out of our way to make social contact with those outside of the faith. Make social contact with people who are not Christians. Now, now, that might seem really, really obvious, but some people miss it. It's important for you as a Christian to maintain social contact with those outside of the faith, because here's what happens sometimes. We come to church on Sundays, and then maybe we have a Bible study in the middle of the week, and um, you know, all those things are good. We have Christian friends, but if we're not careful, we can accidentally isolate ourselves from unbelievers altogether, and then we quarantine the gospel. Well, that's not good. Now, don't get me wrong. I know that Christian fellowship is so very important, but some of us, we come from church backgrounds where we're kind of taught that uh, it's better to keep a safe distance away from non-Christians altogether. Well, what's wrong about all that is if you're not careful, you can cut yourself off from the mission field as a whole, and of course, that would not be good. That would kind of be like a football team who gathers in the huddle the whole time. Well, you're not going to go to a whole lot of yardage out there if you're just in the huddle the whole game, right? We've got to get out there and get in the game. Now, for some of you, this is not hard at all. You work or go to school with unbelievers, and so you can check this off your list pretty easily. But others of you have restructured your life in such a way that you don't really interact or encounter people outside of your faith very often, and so you're going to have to think creatively about how you can make more social contact. Let me just give you one example. Our previous office manager here at NBC, uh, Kelly Abrams, used to do this all the time down in her backyard in Dunellen, New Jersey. Her and her husband, once a week over the summer, would host what they called Open Grill, and they would invite their neighbors over to their backyard just to maintain friendships and and and. Uh, maintain contact with those outside of the faith. And so she used to do this all the time. A couple days ago, she texted me this picture. She's since moved to Maine, and we miss her very much. But she said, hey, check this out. This is us in our backyard in our new house in Maine. So far, just in the last couple months, we've had five successful open grills already, getting to know our neighbors and befriending them for the sake of the Lord. That's what I'm talking about. So how about you? How are you doing engaging people on the outside of the faith. We need to follow our Lord's example here. Okay, let's move on to the text. In John chapter 4 and verse 5, it says this, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. Everybody say noon. Noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me 
a drink. Now think about this. Here's this woman. She has an encounter for the very first time with the second person of the divine trinity, with Jesus, the incarnate son of God, the lion of Judah. And he strikes up a conversation about what? About how angry he is at her because of all of her sin? No. He strikes up a conversation with her about what? Water. Which leads us to the second strategy in sharing our faith in a natural way. We simply must learn to ask questions and engage in normal conversation. Ask questions and engage in normal conversation. One time, Michael Ramsden, who works for Ravi Zacharias Ministries, said this, I have learned a radically revolutionary new inventive methodology for evangelism. It's called talking to people. <laughs> talking to people. At, that's not really that difficult, but some of us, we don't really like to talk to people. Let me just encourage you. Could you talk to people a little bit, could just kind of get out there and talk to people. Uh, in their excellent book, The Nine Arts of Spiritual Conversations, the authors have so much good material on this subject, I would highly recommend the book. They have this one chapter just on how to ask questions, which is worth the price of the book right there. And they say this in that book. They say, we are at our best when we align our hearts and motives with our leader, the greatest question asker ever, Jesus. You might say, well, how do we develop those questions and how do we start those types of conversations? Let me give you four sub-points along with this bullet point, and I apologize if I'm kind of backing up the dump truck on you this morning. So just listen, it'll make sense later. Point A is this, begin by listening, not talking. Can we say that together? Begin by listening, not talking. The goal is to get them talking while you listen. And the way you do that is by asking really good questions. Now you might say, well, what do I ask about? Let me recommend three subjects. Their job, their family, their background. Jot that down. Ask about their job, their family, their background. That's what people like to talk about, job, family, background. My point is you begin by listening, not talking. B, the flow of the conversation must be natural, not forced. Let me put that up there. The flow of the conversation must be natural, not forced. Now, sometimes people can bring up this subject quicker than others. We have three daughters. When one of them was about five years old, she had already heard the gospel and trusted Christ. And right after that, she came up to one of her uncles and simply said this, do you want to go to heaven or do you want to burn in the fire? That's exactly how she said it. <laughs> do you want to go to heaven or are you going to burn in the fire? Well, that was pretty funny. And I guess five-year-olds can get away with things that adults can't get away with. But we need to be a little bit more prepared to bring up spiritual things and have a little bit more nuanced approach. Now, this might take time. If I could just have a moment of complete honesty right here. I have a kind of a more bold personality. And so sometimes I have made the mistake of bringing the subject up before they were really ready. And that's something I have to be really careful about. Sometimes it's too much too soon. You have to be sensitive and let the flow of the conversation be more natural, not forced. I learned that because of this very theologically astute film named Shrek. There's this scene in the movie Shrek where there's this ogre, he's played by Mike Myers, and he's talking to the donkey who's played by comedian Eddie Murphy. And Shrek says this to the donkey, quote, for your information, there's a lot more to ogres than people think. And the donkey says, give me an example. And Shrek says, give you an example, okay, ogres are like onions. And the donkey says, you mean they stink? And Shrek says, no. And the donkey says, you mean they make you cry? And then, of course, Shrek says, no. And the donkey says, oh, you mean you leave them out in the sun and they get all brown and start sprouting little white hairs? And Shrek says, no, layers. Onions have layers. Ogres have layers. 
Ogres are like onions. They both have layers. Friends, just like ogres, people also have layers. It takes time to peel back the layers. On the outside layer, there are their general interests in life, job, family, background. Once you get into the next layer, you'll find out more about their specific interests. Once you get through that layer, you'll find out more about their cares and their concerns and what really makes them tick. And all the way in the center is the spiritual beliefs that they have about God. And so take your time as you peel back the layers with those who are outside the faith. The conversation must take its natural course. C, enjoy the conversation. Can we say that? Enjoy the conversation. Now write that down. Enjoy the conversation. After you write it down, circle the word enjoy. And after you circle the word enjoy, put a box around the word enjoy. And after you put a box around the word enjoy, put a little star by the word enjoy. And after you put a little star by the word enjoy, put an asterisk on the other side of the word enjoy. It's very important that you enjoy the conversation. Sometimes I hear this phrase get thrown around, and I think I know what it means, but they call it friendship evangelism. Nobody wants to be your evangelistic project, though. It has to be a genuine desire for friendship. You have to enjoy the conversation with them. So how about instead of saying friendship evangelism, you just say friendship. Just get to know them, and then over the course of the conversation, you can show the real you, which, of course, is a committed believer in Christ. Enjoy the conversation. Last point under this bullet is this. D, let God direct the flow of the conversation. Let God direct the flow of the conversation. Can we say that together? Let God direct the flow of the conversation. You know what's so exciting to me about evangelism? God is not asking you or me to bring anyone to Christ. The scripture says that it's God who's the one who draws people to his son. All we have to do is let him direct the conversation. Be open and responsive to whatever he is doing in that conversation. That means pray as you listen and listen as you pray. That means as you're talking and listening to them, you're having a face-to-face -face conversation with them, but you're also having a heart-to-heart -heart conversation with God. You pray for two things. You pray for direction and boldness. You pray for direction and boldness. Let God direct the flow of the conversation. One time, I ran into someone who was so ready to hear about the Lord Jesus Christ. He was a Muslim, and he had moved here from Egypt. His name was Mahmoud. And he called me and kind of out of the blue explained who he was and just simply said, Pastor Dave, I'm interested in learning more about Christianity. Now, if you're a pastor and you can't get from there to the gospel, maybe being a pastor is not your bag, okay? So I said, sure, I'd be happy to talk to you more about Christianity. When would you like to talk? He said, I'm in your church parking lot. How about right now? I said, you're in the church parking lot. Okay, come on in. So he comes on in. So I begin to explain to him the difference between what Islam teaches about Jesus as being a mere man and only a prophet and what Christianity teaches about Jesus as being the divine son of God. And we began talking about the gospel. And I led him through four very easy, very simple verses in the book of Romans. I let him read the verses so that he could see I'm not making this up. He read them in my Bible from the book of Romans. And after about one hour, this man bowed his head in my office and trusted Christ for the very first time. I said, that's amazing to me. How is it that you got to be interested in Christianity? And what I found out was there were other Christians who had planted seeds long before he ever made that phone call to me. I was just the last link on the chain. And so let me encourage you. Do you have to be, did me being a pastor help, being, being a minister help in that type of situation? It probably did. But was that essential? No way. 
All you had to know was the basics of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I promise you, you could have done the same thing. Rico Tai says it this way. We preach Christ. God opens blind eyes. We preach Christ. God opens the blind eyes. Now, God has to be the one directing the flow of the conversation. Back to our story. Jesus engages her in a normal conversation. She's shocked by this, by the way. Look at her response in verse 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now, just asking her for a drink might not seem like that big of a deal to you or to me. But if you were in this culture in the first century, then you would not have missed this. And she did not miss this. In this culture, first of all, it would have been unusual for a man to engage a woman in this way in conversation. But it would have been very strange for a Jewish man to talk to a Samaritan woman. And in this passage, Jesus is reaching across, I think, almost every significant cultural barrier that was put up. He crosses the racial barrier. He crosses the cultural barrier. He crosses the gender barrier. We'll even learn later that he crosses the moral barrier. In our society, we would say there are people that are across barriers from us, and we need to learn from the Lord Jesus that our job is to build bridges across those barriers if we want to reflect him. Gabe Lyons, who is become an expert on evangelism with the millennial generation, says it this way. Followers of Christ in a pluralistic society must be willing and able to engage those they disagree with in constructive conversations. How can we love someone we don't know or understand? And that is so true. Jesus crosses the barriers. And she's kind of stunned by this. She's amazed. She's shocked. And Jesus builds this bridge. And she's like, how can a person like you be talking to a person like me? In other words, she can't even believe they're having the conversation. Now, listen to Jesus' reply in verse 10. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God, by the way, when we do evangelism, we are engaging in a gift exchange. The Lord Jesus Christ is a gift. And when you have good news, when you have a gift, just like on Christmas morning, you want to share that gift. Just like that, Jesus says, if you knew the gift of God, which is me, by the way, and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? You don't even have a bucket. Then verse 12, she goes on, Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now, Jesus uses a different word than the word well here to describe what he's offering to her. He uses the word spring. I want you to notice that because he is no longer talking about physical thirst. He has changed the conversation and he is now using thirst as a spiritual metaphor, a metaphor for the kind of spiritual longing that she has and that everyone you come into contact with has who's apart from Christ as well. And what he's saying to her is what we need to learn too. Everyone around you who doesn't know Christ is irremediably thirsty. Every one of you who doesn't, everyone around you who doesn't know Christ is irremediably thirsty. We as human beings are all very thirsty spiritually. Now we can find other things to try to quench that thirst, but ultimately nothing is going to satisfy until we come into a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And here he is offering her living water. 
You know, as a funny aside, I used to wonder a few years ago why we pay for bottled water in our house when we can get the same stuff out of the tap for free. We pay like $3.99 for maybe 24-pack of bottled water. I did a little more research, and there's actually more expensive bottled water than that. You can get Burge water, B-E-R-G, which comes from a glacier in western Greenland for $99 a case. Now, that's about $6 a bottle individually. Can you imagine paying $6 for a bottle of water? But even more pure and more rare than that is Veen water, V-E-E-N water, which is bottled from a remote Finnish spring. It retails for $228 a case. That's about $23 a bottle. Let me ask you this. How much would you pay for a bottle of water that comes from the spring of heaven itself? Jesus says, how about free? How about no charge? How about if anyone is thirsty, why don't they come to me and get a drink? Friends, if you are one who thirsts, Jesus offers you satisfaction free of charge. You don't have to pay for it. You don't have to work for it. You just have to receive it, and all of your thirst will be satisfied. He says you'll never thirst again. That leads us to strategy four. As you're interacting with unbelievers, you must, like our Lord Jesus, learn to turn the conversation from the secular to the spiritual and learn that everyone is thirsty for a lot of things such as purpose. I read an article recently that said, that was entitled, Five Things That You Think Will Make You Happy But Won't. The list was fame, wealth, beauty, intelligence, and power. Now, if you, like me, are 0 for 5, we're kind of out of luck with that one, right? But what Jesus is saying here is that if you put down the bucket of your soul into any of those wells, you'll always come back up thirsty again. That's how people are around us who don't know Christ. They're thirsty for a few things. The first one I already put on the screen. Everyone is thirsty for purpose. If we go back to that last slide. Everyone is thirsty for purpose. Everyone wants to know, why am I alive? Why am I here? They want to have a purpose. There's a problem, though. If you're a nun or a dun, and you have a completely secular worldview, and we live in a random chance universe, there really is no transcendent sense of purpose in that worldview. That's an opportunity to connect with those who have that worldview about a greater spiritual purpose that God has given to each man, woman, and child on this planet. Everyone thirsts for purpose. B, everyone is thirsty for significance. Everyone is thirsty for significance. My favorite movie of all time is the 1977 award-winning film, Rocky. How many of you have seen the movie Rocky? That's like five of you. Okay, how many of you have seen the movie Rocky? Seriously. Okay, Rocky, yeah. Okay, you remember that scene in that movie? Right before this underdog Rocky goes to fight the champ Apollo Creed, he is talking with his wife, Adrian. And here's what he says in that movie. He says, all I want to do is go the distance. Nobody's ever gone the distance with Creed. And if I can go that distance, you see, and that bell rings and I'm still standing, I'm going to know for the first time in my life that I wasn't just another bum from the neighborhood, unquote. What do you hear there? I hear a thirst for significance. And I hear that in all my friends and family and neighbors who don't know Christ either. Everybody wants to feel like their life counted for something, that they mattered, that their life was significant. Now, what other purpose and significance could be greater than living your life for the manner in which God created you to live? That's living on all cylinders. That is true significance. Third, everyone around you is thirsty for belonging, for belonging. Everybody wants to feel like they belong somewhere. The greatest sitcom of all time, everybody knows, 
is the 1980s sitcom Cheers. And the reason why that show was so popular was because the theme song resonated inside of the human heart. You remember the theme song, right? Sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name. Sometimes you want to go where they're always glad you came. You want to be where you can see your troubles are all the same. You want to go where everybody knows your name. What's the point of that song? We are all thirsty to belong. We all want to feel like we're a part of something, a part of a group. There is a spiritual longing for relationship and community and connectedness inside of all of us. Why? The reason is because we are made in the image of the triune relational God of Scripture, Father, Son, and Spirit. And He together made us in His image to long for relationship and community. Where do you think that thirst came from? It came from our living God, the God who is love Himself. Which leads us to the fourth thirst that everybody has. Everybody is thirsty for love. Everybody is thirsty for love. One time Madonna was asked, if your life could be made into a book, what would you title the book? And Madonna answered, why don't you title it, Madonna, A Lonely Life? And the reporter said, A Lonely Life? Madonna, all your fame, all your power, all of your wealth, how can you be so lonely? And her answer stunned me. She said, all I really wanted was not for everyone to know me, but for someone to love me to really love me. Everyone is thirsty for love. Now, does Christianity speak to that deep spiritual thirst and need? Absolutely. Our God is love, for God so loved the world. We can be loved by the very creator and redeemer of the universe. The problem that Jesus is bringing up here is that nothing in this world, though, would ever truly satisfy any of those thirsts or any of those longings in our friends' hearts apart from Him. The same thing is true today. And the way that we can turn the conversation from the secular to the spiritual is recognizing this one truth. Listen to this point. The message of Christianity says that you and I are irremediably thirsty. And the reason why we are all so thirsty is because we have been separated from God. That is the real reason why people are so thirsty for these things. They have been separated from God. That's the problem. The only solution to that thirst is to reconnect them to the spring of living water through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is what Jesus is trying to communicate with to her. The only problem is this. She doesn't get it. She's, she's just kind of listening with maybe half of her ears right now. She just doesn't see what he's talking about. She doesn't track with him. Take a look at her response in verse 15. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. She's clearly not tracking with him. She is not thinking about spiritual thirst in this conversation. In this way, when you're talking with unbelievers, you might get involved in a conversation and you might have to redirect the conversation elsewhere. You might have to turn, make a, make a little adjustment, and this is what Jesus does next. He takes a risk, and he brings up something to her that might get her mind thinking about that spiritual thirst. Look at what he says in verse 16. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Now, I think she said that in such a way that communicated, don't go there. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying, I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one, the sixth one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. 
And ladies and gentlemen, Jesus has her undivided attention. Sometimes I've gone to evangelism seminars and listened to talks on how to share my faith. And sometimes people say, you know, be careful that you don't draw too much attention to someone's sin. Be careful not to make them feel uncomfortable or awkward in the conversation. Jesus missed that course. He has put his finger directly on the thing that she has been using in her life to satisfy her spiritual thirst, namely other men. My friends, she has learned something. She can hide from others. She can even hide from herself. But she cannot hide from this Jesus of Nazareth. Does anybody remember what time of day this interchange occurred? What time was the barbecue? Noon. Why would they have this exchange at high noon? This was the absolute heat of the day in their culture. It's about to be noon out here today in July 21st. Does anybody want to go outside and have a spiritual conversation? No, keep me indoors, right? Most of the time, women would go to get water in the morning when it was reasonably cool. The only reason why anybody would ever come and draw water at this time of day was because they must have been avoiding other people. That's what's going on. This woman was an outcast. This woman was an outsider. Even among her own people, she was an outsider. But yet, Jesus goes to her anyway. She says this after Jesus brings up that uncomfortable subject. Verse 19, sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Now, here's what's going to happen. When you steer the conversation from the secular to the spiritual, people will begin to think about all of their questions and objections they have about Christianity and your spirituality. It will just come to the surface naturally. And that's what happens here. And in that case, we need to learn from the Lord Jesus that we also need to be prepared for questions and objections. Let's put that on the screen. Be prepared for questions and objections. We have to learn to answer the most common objections to our faith. Now, I know for some of you, this is really intimidating. But let me just encourage you that 1 Peter chapter 3 exhorts all of us that we're to be always prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you, to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. We're all called to be prepared to give answers to questions and objections. Now, I meet people who they memorize baseball statistics and they can tell you exactly who was in the Hall of Fame last year, but yet they object to being able to handle what is probably the 10 or 12 most common objections to Christianity. Because after you do this for a while, you start hearing the same objections over and over and over again. There's really not that many. So you just need to be prepared for the, you know, the most common ones. Here's what I want you to think about with this point. Let me put this picture up on the screen. Before people can see the gospel, sometimes they have some things that are standing in the way. They have some objections, they have some thoughts in their mind, and they can't clearly see Christ until you, another Christian, remove that barrier so that they can see clearly to the gospel. I just put up three random examples on the screen, and I have heard these many, many times. So first one is this. You're at a barbecue and somebody says, well, you know, uh, this happened to me one time. Somebody says, you know, I, I don't even believe in God. I, I can't even believe anybody could believe in God. And instead of trying to defend the attributes of God and all that stuff, all I simply said to them was, why don't you tell me about the God you don't believe in? I probably don't believe in him either. And then as they began to explain their very perverted view of who God was, I was able to correct them and give them a true understanding of the one true majestic perfect God that we know and love. Objection number two. 
Becky Pippert gives this great example in her book about the Bible. She said one time people, somebody said to her, you know, how can you trust the Bible? It's so full of errors and mistakes. And she said, you know, I've been reading the Bible for a long time, and I, I haven't been able to uh, find any of those, but I hear this objection a lot. Why don't you show me one? And she found out that the person had never read the Bible ever. And so, see, sometimes what people do is they repeat other things that they've heard said in the past, and they're not even really thinking about it. And so here was her response to them. She said, so you've made up your mind about Jesus Christ without ever looking into the primary source documents? The person said, yeah, that's true. And she said, how would you like it if you wrote a book and I criticized your book without ever reading it? He said, well, I wouldn't like that very much. He said, would you be willing to read the Bible together with me? Becky Pippert has a resource on that. It's called Uncovering, where she just goes through six lessons in the Gospel of Mark. Excellent resource to go through with an unbeliever. So that's the way you would handle the Bible objection. Or you could come up with your own answer. Three, people often bring up the issue of evil in the world. And they say, well, you know, how, how could you really believe in God because of all this evil that's all around the world? Michael Ramsden, who works for Ravi Zacharias Ministries, got this objection one time, and I like his answer the best. Uh, they said, you know, how can you believe in God because there's so much evil? And he said, you know what, that's true, I agree with you. I do believe there's a lot of evil in the world. In my worldview, I have an understanding of where that evil came from. Tell me, what more concerns you, the evil that's out there, or aren't we all supposed to be more concerned about the evil that's inside here, inside of the human heart? And with that simple little turn of phrase, that simple little reframing, he was able to steer the conversation back to the Lord Jesus. And so you just have to push some of those objections out of the way because there's like mental debris in people's mind that need to be cleared out. And you have to be prepared to answer those things. Now, I know what you're thinking. What if I get in this conversation and I don't have an answer for their question? I have the solution for you. It's three words. You simply say to them, I don't know. Can we say that together? I don't know. I don't know. When you say I don't know, it communicates two things that start with H, honesty and humility. Neither one of those things are bad things when it comes to representing the Lord Jesus Christ. Just say I don't know and then go back and find out the answer and say I'd like to get back to you on that. Now, the more you do this, you will learn from experience. Dawson Trotman, the founder of The Navigators, famously used to say, they might catch me once, but they will never catch me again. The more you do this, the more you will learn how easy it is to answer some of these common objections to the Christian faith. We did a series last fall on this, and we covered the top 12 objections to Christianity. That's up on our website and on the NBC app if you want to use that as a resource. You've got to answer objections, but I say that only to be followed by the next statement. When you're getting into a conversation like this, do not get into an argument. Do not get into an argument. Say that with me. Do not get into an argument. Now turn to your neighbor and tell them. Do not get into an argument. God does not need you to argue people into the kingdom of heaven. It is the Holy Spirit's job to take the gospel, drill it down into somebody's heart, into the very center, and that's when they begin to see the beauty of Jesus Christ. It is God's job. Listen, David Henschel has never brought someone to Christ. That is God's job, not mine. And thank God for that. My, my mentor used to say, your job, Dave, is, to bring is not to bring people to Christ. It's to bring Christ to people. Your job is not to bring people to Christ. It's just simply to bring Christ to people. And you be faithful to do what God has called you to do with gentleness and respect. 
First Timothy chapter two addresses this. Paul says to his young protege, don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels. Do not get into an argument. True story. Guy came to Christ, he was a brand new convert and he had that kind of new convert excitement. He wanted everybody to know about the gospel and what Jesus Christ had done for them. In his community, there was an unbeliever who was kind of noted for being just that, an unbeliever. He loved to outwit his opponents, parade his intelligence, and make a fool out of as many Christians as he could. Now, although the new believer felt inadequate to address him in conversation, he still felt convicted that he should go and talk to this guy. And so he went with his permission to talk to him about the Lord. He started talking to him about the gospel, and within about two minutes... This unbeliever had reduced this new convert to smithereens. He talked to him like he was a totally ignorant fool. The new believer actually started to cry. His lips started to quiver, tears filled up in his eyes. He simply said, please forgive me. I've wasted your time. I really don't know how to answer that question. I don't know how to explain all this to you. I just came here because I love you. And I just want you to know the same Jesus that changed my life. Don't bother showing me the way out. I'll find the door. With that, he left. He went home, talked to his wife, said, you know, I just got to go pray in my study. I need to be alone. I've had one of the most difficult witnessing experiences I've ever had. I guess I'm not very good at this stuff. I got to go spend some time on my knees with the Lord. So he goes off to his study, begins to pray. And then about an hour later, they hear a knock at the door. The wife goes to the door. Standing on the outside of this door is this unbeliever. He said, I'd like to talk to your husband. The wife said, you know, my husband's had a difficult day. He's requested to be alone. It's not really a good time. The unbeliever said, oh, I think he'd love to see me. <laughs> she showed him over to the study. He walks in, looks at the new convert in the eye and says, first of all, I'm sorry for the way I treated you. I hope you can forgive me. Second of all, I want to know God, your God. The new convert said, what do you mean you want to know God, my God? You just told me everything I think and believe is idiotic. I couldn't answer any of your questions. The unbeliever said, yeah, but I couldn't answer your last argument. He said, what do you mean you couldn't answer my last argument? He said, the tear in your eye as you walked out my door. He said, I thought to myself, how could somebody like you ever love somebody like me? I want to know God, your God and he led that believer to the Lord. Friends, I beg you, everybody out there in our culture is arguing. I beg you to listen to this advice from Larry Moyer, the president of Evantel. In responding to those who oppose your message, next slide, use a humble attitude, not a hostile argument. In responding to those who oppose your message, use a humble attitude, not a hostile argument. They need your patience, not your pressure. They need your humility, not your pride. Now, why do people come to us with these objections and questions? Sometimes it's for the simple reason that nobody's explained it to them. Other times, they are bringing up what is commonly known as a smokescreen. That might be what's going on in John chapter 4. Jesus has just brought up a very uncomfortable subject, and she in turn decides that she wants to change the subject. And I think... She's bringing up what's called an intellectual red herring. Watch how Jesus responds to her question. Listen to her, his answer. 21. 
Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, that's the hour of his death, the hour is coming and is now here, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Simple answer. It's really not that important where you worship. It's important how you worship. Then she responds like this, verse 25. The woman said, I know that Messiah is coming, he who's called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Wow. Wouldn't you have loved to have been a fly on the wall of this well just to watch what was going on? I am the Messiah who the prophets spoke about. I'm the one you've all been waiting for. I am the Christ. I'm the one in whom you can find the answers to all of your spiritual thirst, not with those first five, not with the one you're with, number six, but with me, number seven, the perfect man. I will quench your irremediable thirst with the water that I give. You will never be thirsty again. The story goes on to say that that Samaritan woman found her relationship with Jesus on that day. She found not just forgiveness for her sins and a removal of all shame, but as she trusted Christ, it says that she dropped her water jar and went back and told everyone in her town about the Lord Jesus as well. Why? Because Jesus gave her something to quench that thirst forever, a restored relationship with God. That brings us to the last point in our strategy to share in a natural way. And it's a very important point. Your conversation is really not over until you've gotten to the person of Jesus Christ. Whatever else you talk about in your spiritual conversation, you've got to get them to the person of Jesus Christ. Get them to deal with Jesus. If you don't bring them anywhere else, bring them to the person of Jesus. He is what their soul is really thirsty for. C.S. Lewis used to say it this way. For every desire that you find out there in nature, there is always a corresponding source of satisfaction. Lewis said, you look around, you see ducklings want to swim, there's such a thing as water. You look around and you see birds are hungry, there's such a thing as worms. You look around and you see babies crave milk, there's such a thing as mothers. But C.S. Lewis said this, if I find in myself a desire for which nothing in this present world can satisfy, then the only logical explanation is that I was made for something and someone beyond this world. Everyone is irremediably thirsty. We're made for fellowship with the living God, made known through Jesus Christ. Unless we give God access to the well of our heart, we will remain thirsty forever. Jesus said, though, if you come to me, you'll never thirst again. What was true back then is true today. Some of the last words in the Bible are found in Revelation chapter 22. It says this, the spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who's thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. So powerful, so powerful. Friends, all around you, there are people who are irremediably thirsty. You have access to the spring. Invite them to come and offer them something to drink. Our Lord says, come, and whenever 
when it, on a personal level, when, whenever I have been privileged to watch somebody take a drink like this for the very first time, it is an amazing sight to see that I have never, ever forgotten. I remember every single time. I know salvation is God's work, and we're so dependent on him. But ours is the joy of seeing them take that first drink. Ours is the joy of watching them come to that spring for the very first time. Nothing thrills my heart like sharing the good news of Jesus Christ and watching them drink from this spring. Christians, am I the only one here who's encouraged by knowing that all of those whose, whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life will be saved? Let me put up the, the, those five strategies that we've talked about today. This comes from an actual record of the master evangelist himself reaching out to someone who is spiritually thirsty. Those are practical strategies that we can use in our life today. They don't just work for the woman at the well. They work for the guy at the grill. So who do you know in your life that God has placed you around that needs to hear about this living water? Who is that person that came to your mind earlier? What is their name? Who is the one that you can talk to and share about this living water? There might be somebody in crisis around you in your life right now who God has placed you in their path. People that I will never interact with, but you will. And I believe with all my heart, God wants to use each and every one of us to share this living water. There's an old prayer that I'd like to become the prayer of your heart today that says this, lay a soul upon my heart. Love that soul through me. May I humbly do my part to lead that soul to thee. Lay a soul upon my heart. Love that soul through me. May I humbly do my part to lead that soul to thee. I want to share one more story as the worship team comes back up for one more song. God has really placed a burden in my heart for this area, for central New Jersey. And it's not just to grow our church. It's, it's, I just have a burden to transform the way people in New Jersey think about Jesus Christ. I want to transform the way people think about Jesus Christ, but I can never accomplish a vision like that on my own. We have to do that together as a body. That's a really lofty goal. You might say, well, what if you never get to that goal? What, well, let me tell you this story. You've probably heard it before. There was a boy walking along a seashore, and there was a lot of starfish laid out on the beach ready to die. The boy was throwing the starfish back into the ocean. A man came along, an older man came along, saw the boy and said, what are you doing? There's no way you're ever going to be able to save all these starfish. You could do this all day. It's still only going to make a very small difference. The boy looked at the man. The boy looked back at the starfish, bent down, picked one up, and threw it back in the ocean and said, well, it made a big difference to that one. Lay a soul upon my heart and love that soul through me. May I humbly do my part to lead that soul to thee. Amen. Can we pray? Heavenly Father, we want to be so sensitive to how you're prompting us right now, to how you want us to reach out with your love. Help us to take steps toward individuals in our lives to make an attempt to step out in faith, to begin a spiritual conversation for their sake, for your sake, but also for our sake. We want to be who you've made us to be. We want to share that living water Lord Jesus, when you came to this earth, you were the perfect king, the perfect son. And about you, Psalm 2 says, ask of me, 
and I will give you the nations. And Lord Jesus, at the end of your life, we remember that you asked the Father for the nations and commissioned us, your followers, to make disciples of all nations in your name. Help us to do our part. We want to be used by you, we pray, for Christ's sake, for his reputation. Amen.